Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 22nd. Today, the Post journalist who spent more than 500 days imprisoned in Iran. Plus, Kamala Harris launches a presidential campaign and a city regroups after ISIS departs. I know you want to read about what it's like to be isolated in one of the world's most infamous prisons. How someone survives that. But you don't really want to know. It's a hard experience, designed to dehumanize and disjoint the subject from reality. And guess what? It works. Jason Resign was a foreign correspondent covering Iran for The Post when, in July 2014, he was kidnapped along with his wife. Pulled from his home and placed in Iran's worst prison. They were taken to a notorious prison in Tehran, and Jason was slapped with bogus charges of being a spy. We're learning this morning that Jason Rezaian has been convicted. No evidence has been produced of espionage or any other offense. The Post pushed for his release in what turned out to be a huge global campaign. Let this decent and innocent man go. We are working every single day to try to get them out and won't stop until they're up and rejoined with their families. The State Department got involved and Jason's capture became part of negotiations in the Iran nuclear deal. After the nuclear deal was completed, the discussions between our governments accelerated. Yesterday, these families finally got the news that they had been waiting for. Jason Rezion is coming home. And by the time Jason was released in January of 2016, he had spent 544 days in prison, including two months in solitary confinement. Now he's back in the newsroom at The Post. He's written a book about his experiences, which is out this week. And what's striking to me about this book is, like, how funny it can be. How much nuance there is, even when he's recounting such a horrible ordeal. It was a life experience. And I think every experience in life has nuance. It's never just one thing or the other. It's never just good or bad. And it went on for 544 days. And there's characters involved. So there's going to be a lot of ups and many more downs. But, you know, it felt really important to me to breathe some life into that. Otherwise, it would have just been one more book about how terrible that regime is. And that's a book that would do, you know, not very much to add to the overall understanding of that place, of U.S.-Iran relations, of being the child of immigrants in this country, an indictment of solitary confinement. I had to do all of these things in this book. Otherwise, it wasn't worth it for me to do. There are a lot of moments where you describe the so-called evidence mm. that they had against you. Suggest- There's a lot more that I didn't go into. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. I can only imagine. But all of this evidence, I mean, it seems like something out of a Monty Python movie, right? That, like, they thought that you were a spy because you had started a Kickstarter 
like about bringing avocados to Iran. I mean, can you talk a little bit about some of that stuff that in the moment probably blew your mind because it just seemed so weird? It seemed so weird. And I, I don't know if it was by design or not, but it genuinely pushes you towards the edge of insanity because you're pushing back against all of these ridiculous claims. And ultimately, I realized that Anything I did, anything that I had written in the past or whatever was going to be used against me. And I think in that moment, that first night when they start talking about this avocado Kickstarter project I had, which was really, I don't want to say it was a joke because it wasn't a joke. I was trying to illustrate a larger point about what happens when a country is cut off from the world by sanctions. Can you actually just describe what the Kickstarter project is? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's still up there on the Kickstarter site. I failed. Uh, it, you know, I, I think maybe I should re- resurrect the site. Maybe we get a little bit more funding for it now. But, you know, my, my basic premise was Iran is a country where you can grow almost anything. Iranians in America, like anybody else, love avocados. But you go to Iran and talk about an avocado and almost nobody knows what it is. Right. So what's they, it? That they actually just have never, never seen one, heard never heard of exactly, an avocado. exactly. So that was that was the basic premise of the whole thing. Like I said, I failed, but it became something that they interrogated me about relentlessly for months, literally for months. And you know, one thing I don't write about in the book, but about seven months into my imprisonment, my lead interrogator one day shows up with one of his colleagues. And it was very rare for them to enter into the prisoners' cells. And they had a, a paper bag with them. And uh, I'm wondering, oh, my God, what's in the bag, you know? And they pull out a single avocado and hand it to me. <laughs> uh, and they said, you know, we've searched long and hard, and we found one in one of the bazaars where they carry a lot of imported products. <sighs> we bought two of them. We tested one of them. It's horrible. You know? <laughs> And they they left it for me, uh, and it was sort of like. Yeah, what, what did you think about that? I, mean, I was thought it to funny, my, or were you I, like? I thought it was oh. funny, but at the same time, I also thought to myself, this is kind of a a peace offering from these guys that you know they know there's no there there. Yeah. Um, and I think as time went on, as my release became eminent, they let their guard down a lot and made it clear that there was no case against me. And they'd known that pretty much from from the beginning. The beginning. Yeah, I mean there was. I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, you because their excuses are so. I like the fact that they got an access to your Gmail account, and we're looking through your Gmail, and we're like picking random phrases from emails and saying that that was spy language and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I think they probably just ran a search in my Gmail and they said, "Okay, well, this is you know something." And then at some point, they mentioned that your Gmail is disorganized and messy, yeah. and that's kind of classic spy tactics of how to yeah, this shows hide what you're your, really your, doing. Your dexterity as a spy. I mean, constantly. I was like, really? What else? What else is going to be a a potential skill as far as you're concerned? They turned me into a boogeyman and not one that their front story could really match up with. And I, I attribute a lot of that to The Post and other news organizations and my family and lots of people who knew me putting out all kinds of Evidence contrary to every, everything that they were saying about me. So I knew in the long run, this kind of case of public opinion was one that I would win. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't going to fight very hard in, in the case against me there because it was unwinnable. All I could do was just say I didn't do anything wrong. Three years later, I'm still saying I didn't do anything wrong. 
It seems like at various points you were trying to give yourself pep talks of like, not only this is going to be okay, but I'm growing in some way through this. Yeah. Is that just something that you told yourself or do you feel like there was actually? No, I think that, that that's, you know, I talk about some other difficult things that happened in my life and my family's life before all of this happened to us. And, uh, you know, I, I I would tell my wife that this is all just practice for something harder we're going to face at some point in the future. And I hope that I'm wrong about that, but I'm glad I have this prep work done already. The truth is you want to just put these things behind you, right? But that's a year and a half of my life that was taken away from me in a lot of ways. I have a choice about whether I just want to suppress that forever or try and and use it now because it's your life. It's your canvas to do with what you want, right? And I can imagine that most people having gone through an experience like that would like to just put that experience deep in the basement in a box with the nondescript sticker on it and just forget about it forever. But that's one of those boxes that, you know, continues to pop open (laughs) if you're not careful about it. So I I prefer to try and use the experience for the best uses that I can. And then at one point, I believe it was the guards brought you a piece of paper and a pen and were like, we want you to write your life story. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Why did they do that? And what was that like? I think it was... It was meant to get me to write things that would be potentially damning against myself. I don't think that they realized that for somebody who writes for a living, how empowering that would feel in the moment. That was towards probably the last two weeks or so that I was in solitary confinement. And I think it helped me come back to reality. I wish I had those pieces of paper now. Uh, I'd like to know exactly what I wrote on them. Do you remember vaguely what you wrote? Yeah, I mean, you know, they said, write your life story. So, okay, here I am. This is what happened, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I was a fat kid, and I was on the swim team, and I liked baseball, and, you know, I mean, (laughs) you know, I just did what they said, and they they brought it back to me and said, this is not good, you know? I said, why is this not good? It's my life story, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Why Uh, why wasn't it good? (laughs) Well, it wasn't good because it didn't implicate me in any kind of crimes. And, And, you know, that's the whole... They're coming at this from so many different angles, and they're all they're trying to do is get you to fall in a trap of your own making so that they can take you to court and say, you know what, this guy admitted to all sorts of crimes, which I don't know if I did or I didn't, but when I was finally put on trial, I just said, hey, man, I didn't do anything wrong. And they, they brought me there four different times over a, a three-month period, very long sessions, taped by the Iran's propaganda networks. And those tapes have never been aired. And part of the reason they've never been aired is because I didn't cop to any guilt. So, you know, if you find yourself in the revolutionary court in Iran on trial one day, do yourself a favor and deny, deny, deny. (laughs) But the thing that you wrote, even if it wasn't ultimately helpful to them, why was it helpful to you? I think it was helpful to me to just sit down and take stock of where I'd come from, what brought me to where I was, and as a reminder that life is a pretty long journey and the odds were pretty good that this was just going to be one more weird twist in the road. Now, as time dragged on, it became more and more 
hopeless. And I think if the nuclear deal with Iran was implemented and I wasn't released at that time, the evidence is pretty striking and clear that I'd still be in prison right now. I mean, there are Americans who were in prison in Iran while I was there that are still in prison now. It's three years since I've been out. I was in there for a year and a half. I can't imagine what it would have been like for me to sit there for four, five, six years, maybe longer. Because, you know, the biggest fear in your, in your mind becomes, okay, I'm probably not going to kill myself, right? But I might become an old man in this place. And the fact that that didn't happen is reason enough for me to be pretty excited about the rest of my life. Jason Resign is a global opinions writer for The Post. His book is called Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison, and it's out this week. She spends a lot of time helping people pronounce Kamala. She's named Kamala because her mother is an Indian immigrant who came to the U.S. as an adult and worked as a physician. And her father is a Jamaican immigrant who was an economics professor. Black Jamaican. Yes, a black Jamaican. Senator Kamala Harris has announced that she's running for president in 2020, which makes her the most high-profile person of color to enter the race so far. And as this first-term senator starts campaigning and trying to make herself known to a national audience, her biggest priority will be to get people to know who she is and where she came from. Kamala Harris is a senator from the state of California. She's been in the U.S. Senate since 2017. And prior to that, she was an attorney general for the state and the state's first woman attorney general and first black attorney general and first Asian-American attorney general. And so she has a history of breaking down barriers and being pioneering in her political and legal careers. Eugene Scott is a politics reporter for The Post, and he says that those questions of who she is and where she's from are made more complicated by the fact that she's not just choosing to highlight the Black or Asian side of her background. She identifies as both. She grew up worshiping at a Hindu temple and a Black Baptist church in the Bay Area before coming to D.C. to study at Howard University, which is a historically Black college. I think that a lot of people read her as a Black woman, and yet very very similar to Barack Obama, like his background was very unfamiliar to a lot of people, right? That he is the child of a Kenyan immigrant and then he grew up with his white mother. And it's much more complicated than just like Kamala Harris is a black woman. I don't think a lot of people remember that when Barack Obama launched his campaign 
in 2008, most black voters were with Hillary Clinton. They were not familiar with Barack Obama, and those with a more narrow view of blackness felt a hard time connecting with this candidate who had, by his own admission, a difficult-to-pronounce name and whose father was a Kenyan immigrant and who was raised by a white woman. Kamala Harris's situation is very similar in many ways. Her parents divorced when she was very young, and she was raised by her mother. And so her South Asian heritage definitely shaped her worldview and her sense of identity significantly. But unlike Barack Obama, Harris really tapped into some of the more traditional institutions within Black American culture pretty early that helped other people see her as Black more quickly. For example, we mentioned she went to a historically black college. She also pledged the oldest black sorority in the country, Alpha Kappa Alpha. And so she has projected herself in many ways as a black American woman much longer and more publicly than I think Barack Obama was able to or did. So Harris has only been in the Senate for a couple of years now, but we've seen some kind of high profile moments with her. Yes, Senator Harris attracted quite a few headlines during her interaction with former Attorney General Jeff Sessions during his confirmation hearings. Did you have any communication with any Russian businessmen or any Russian nationals? I don't believe I had any conversation with Russian businessmen or Russian nationals. Are you aware of Although any communication? A lot of people were at the convention. It's conceivable that somebody sir, came sir, up to me. Sir, I have just a few. Well, you minutes. let me qualify it. I, if, you, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. So some of her questioning made quite a few memes and went viral online and certainly gained her a new fan base from people outside of the more progressive base of the Democratic Party. So she has this legacy as a prosecutor, which I think in some ways aligns with Democrats' interests in that she's this tough questioner and she's going to hold people's feet to the fire. But she does also have this history in terms of criminal justice that not all Democrats find palatable. That's definitely going to be an issue with her, with the more progressive wings of the Democratic Party. What she's going to have to communicate to that wing is that she actually is an advocate for equal rights for people when it comes to the court of law and having to face the criminal justice system. She certainly believes that the totality of her track record as an attorney general will vindicate her. What do we know about the platform that she's running on? Well, we know her policy platform is focused primarily on helping the middle class in America do a better job of achieving the American dream. So far, we know she is proposing $2.8 trillion in middle class tax cuts. She really wants to erase the racial disparity in childbirth deaths, which we've seen increased reporting on in the past year or so. And she definitely wants to make housing more affordable for low income renters. A lot of those talking points sound pretty similar to what Senators Elizabeth Warren and Kirsten Gillibrand have also put out in in their initial platforms for president. How do you think she's going to be able to differentiate herself? I think what she has working for her that Warren and certainly Gillibrand do not have is that she has a base of support that more aligns with some of the more prominent voting blocs in the Democratic Party. She is a black woman, and we know that black women are perhaps the most influential voting bloc in the Democratic Party. 
She is popular with millennials and activists. I found it interesting that when you look at her campaign events for the coming week, it seems like she's focusing her efforts on South Carolina and not on Iowa and New Hampshire. And it feels like that sends some kind of message. I definitely think she is gunning for the base of the Democratic Party. By having your headquarters in Baltimore and Oakland, that communicates something. These are urban communities. These are communities with large percentages of working class, people of color. Oakland certainly is known for having a sizable LGBT community because of its location in the Bay. These are communities that we know historically would vote Democratic. As we said, she had her first press conference on a college campus. She wants people to turn out who perhaps did not turn out in 2016 after voting for Obama. She's hoping to win these people. And and, and because of her story being the uh, daughter of immigrants, she's been compared to a female Barack Obama. And so these are people she's going for. With that being said, I don't think she is obviously ignoring independent voters or former Trump voters. There was a question she was asked this weekend about how does she perceive herself being that she is the daughter of an Indian American and a Jamaican immigrant. And she said, I see myself as a proud American. And that was a very clear, direct sentence that I think is true to her, but also I would think would resonate with some, quite frankly, white working class voters in the heartland who want to know that she is working for their best interests as well as those who look more like her. Eugene Scott is a politics reporter for The Post. In the first 24 hours after Harris announced her 2020 bid, the campaign said that it raised $1.5 million in grassroots contributions. Before we go, one more thing. For much of 2017, the Philippine city of Marawi was held by extremists linked to ISIS. The Philippine military, backed by the U.S., eventually took Marawi back. But months of battle leveled the city. Our Southeast Asian correspondent, Shibani Matani, went to Marawi or what's left of it. She recorded this dispatch from the heart of a city once held by terrorists. I'm standing here at the Grand Mosque, one of the largest mosques in Marawi. This was a mosque that was used as a recruitment point and a logistics hub for the ISIS-linked militants that held the city under siege for about five months in 2017. The siege has ended, but Marawi still looks pretty much the same as when the Philippine army declared victory over these ISIS-linked militants. From out at this mosque, which is uh, sort of a three-story mosque here, uh, you get a vantage point of the whole city. Looking down below, weeds and moss and overgrowth plants have pretty much engulfed the houses below. Uh, it's a rainy day and it's it's really foggy, but even through the fog you can see the utter and complete destruction here. Buildings riddled with bullet holes. There's some just walls standing around without shelters or without their, their roofs torn off. We have spent the day speaking to internally displaced people 
thousands of whom still remain on the outskirts of Marawi and, and the other metropolitan areas in this region, they've all said that they want to return home, but they're unclear when that could be. Looking at these scenes, it does seem like it's going to be years and years before Marawi is rebuilt. It's been a year and a half and rehabilitation really hasn't even started and all the broken roofs and uh, the mangled cars and the steel beams and stuff that litter the road that only really started in earnest last October and um, there's there's really a lot to be done here it's going to be a long long time before Marawi looks anything like it did before or if it ever will at all and what that means for the thousands of people that used to call this home is very much in question It's almost sunset now in Marawi. The city is deadly quiet. There's a fog that has sort of engulfed the entire landscape. Looking around, some people have marked the walls of their homes that remain with the names of their family as saying property of such and such family, put their numbers on the buildings. These people were briefly allowed to return home in, in April for a few days to salvage what remained of their homes. Many people who used to live here in Marawi are worried about land rights and they're worried that if the government were to demolish their homes, their structures and rebuild more permanent structures in their place and, and replace these bombed out shelters basically they will lose the right to their land and they'll lose that right to the home that they once lived in and the government has told people not to worry about that but obviously they haven't been convinced so far there's a deep sense of mistrust and suspicion among the government and analysts say that actually that's helped make it fertile ground for continued influence of terrorist groups like that ISIS-related Mote group that held the city hostage for a few months in 2017. Shibani Matani is the Southeast Asia correspondent for The Post. On Monday, voters in the mostly Muslim region of Mindanao in the southern Philippines voted in a referendum on whether to self-govern. The proposal, backed by Manila, is seen as a way to deter a resurgence of separatist violence in the region. Results are expected later this week. That's it for Post Reports. You can learn more about the stories in today's episode, plus dig into our archives, over at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.